This is the History Tavern Podcast. A wealthy New Yorker from a prominent family, John Jay went on to play a critical role in shaping early America. During the American Revolution, he served as president of the Second Continental Congress and helped negotiate peace with the British after the war. He was the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court and was later elected Governor of New York. He was also a slave-holding abolitionist who recognized that slavery was philosophically indefensible while continuing to own slaves into the 19th century. Jay's life, like early America, was defined by conflicting currents of freedom and racial subjugation. On the latest episode of the History Tavern Podcast, hosted by me, Nick Tony, I talked to David Gelman about his book, Liberty's Chain, Slavery, Abolition, and the Jay Family of New York. Our interview picks up after I asked what opportunities using a prominent family like the Jays offers in shedding light on race in America. So having done a couple of books, my dissertation book uh, was Emancipating New York about the abolition of slavery in New York. And then I also did that uh, documentary history with a colleague, a friend of mine, uh, David Quigley, uh, who's at Boston College. Um, but particularly with the study of the abolition of uh, slavery in New York, um, that was a very much a study in which ideas and sort of disembodied articles in newspapers, anyone who's read 18th and early 19th century newspapers knows that you seldom know who the author is and, and, and even more rarely is the author identified. So it was a very uh, sort of discursive book. There were, there were certainly some people in it, um, but not in that flesh and blood three-dimensional way um, that, uh, that I felt was a possibility for this topic. So by both extending the time range um, by doing a multi-generational study and by locating it in a family, a founding family that was a slaveholding family and therefore would give me um, uh, flesh and blood slaveholders and flesh and blood enslaved people, um, I felt like I could come at um, some similar territory in a way that really featured um, the intersection of the personal and the political, the intersection of the cultural and the everyday in a way that uh, my previous studies, which were almost entirely oriented towards the public sphere, um, didn't get me. Um, and so that was part of the genesis uh, and also a desire to kind of move the story forward in time in a way that um, my work, particularly my Emancipating New York book, I mean, really, it's a stretch to get to 1827. Um, I mean, it gets there, but in, in an epilogue. Uh, but I, the Jays gave me an opportunity to do an arc that went um, from the revolution through reconstruction with some stuff in the colonial period at the beginning and some post-reconstruction stuff at the end, but with that 100-year arc in the middle to really um, be sensitive to the, not only the sort of standard change over time questions, but the ironies uh, and inconsistencies, but also the um, through lines, uh, you know, so it's about transformation, but it's also about transmission. So the ways in which values gets transmitted and transformed across time in a family that's so, uh, whose identity um, is identified so profoundly with the founding, uh, but then finds itself in the midst not, of not only times, but places itself in the uh, on the radical edge of an issue that if anything's gonna blow the country up, that's gonna rend the fabric of the union that John Jay was so important to creating, 
it's going to be the issue of slavery. And to have this family that's so closely identified um, with the founding, then identify so closely with the issue that is most combustible, um, is to watch people in three dimensions over time uh, reinvent and reinvigorate um, their relationship to what they see as the, the the moral significance of history. Well, it's incredible because you know this plays out in all the family letters that you you, you investigated, and uh, literally this evolution over the course of a hundred years with these characters that you come to know because you bring them to life on on, on in the book. Uh, I want to sort of touch quickly on uh, the Jay family and how they how do they get to America? What what what's their origins? How they end up here? So the Jays are Huguenots, and that's a very important part of their identity. And of course, they marry lots of other people who aren't Huguenots, but that the Jay line, the sort of uh, uh, patrilineal uh, and patriarchal line is very much tied with their origins. So um, the Jays were Huguenots uh, who were French Protestants and uh, who were tolerated, but things get kind of tighter and tighter. Uh, and then in 1685, the Edict of Nantes is revoked, and that's the edict um, that had basically for much of uh, the 16th century, uh, I mean, the 17th century, excuse me, um, allowed Protestants uh, to sort of live as, you know, equal subjects in the realm. And I'll let European historians, uh, you can ask them how true that actually was. But this is a pretty shocking event. And the, the Huguenot diaspora is quite extensive. A lot of them, of course, go to other parts of Europe, um, but they also, and, and to England, uh, but also to the Americas, like something like 200,000 Huguenots leave France um, in, in the wake of the um, revocation of the Edict of Nantes. And so uh, Auguste J, who later sort of anglicizes his name to Augustus, um, he is off in Africa uh, when the edict of doing family business, um, you know, they're from a, a French slave trading port. I mean, I can't specifically uh, finger him as being involved in the slave trade, but surely um, that was part of the business that he was learning and the stuff he was doing in Africa. Um, his family, you know, takes off for England um, and he goes to South Carolina where a completely different Jay story might have uh, unfolded because there are a lot of prominent Huguenots in South Carolina, obviously the Lawrence family being another founding family uh, deeply involved in the slave trade. I mean, they, they could have, Huguenots did very well in South Carolina, but for whether, whatever reason, whether it was the warm weather, I don't know, uh, he made his way up to New York and obviously there and that made all the difference. Um, and he very quickly um, falls in with uh, New York's elite, which is, uh, many of them are Dutch in ancestry, but they're um, Anglo in cultural orientation. And he actually um, doesn't stay a Huguenot, a French Protestant for long. He actually joins the uh, Episcopal Church um, and so really anglicizes himself and marries into uh, the Bayard family. Do I have that correct? I'm just looking over at my, <laughs> my family tree um, and uh, becomes a merchant. I mean, he's by no means, you know, these are not Livingstons and Van Rensselaers, but they are, you know, uh, they marry into the Van Cortland family, which is a very prominent family. And so by, you know, by business and marriage, they're kind of in that New York mercantile elite, but they're not patroons. They're not the people who own the vast tracts of the Hudson Valley, um, but they're connected to those people. Um, and, um, and here, you know, 
we can actually see some slave trading activity uh, in the family and, and slave owning uh, as all uh, uh, the elite families in New York and many of the not so elite uh, Euro American families in New York own slaves, particularly in, um, in and around Manhattan, Long Island, the Hudson Valley. Um, and that's where the sort of you can sort of you can put your finger on how their lives are intertwined with enslaved people's lives in very um, direct and important ways. I know this is sort of a big question, so I apologize ahead of time. But what did what did slavery look like? Uh, well, the Jay family was sort of between New York City and Westchester area. Yeah, so they they started New York City, um, and they're Murto Augustus Jay and his son uh, Peter Jay, and there are many Peter Jays in this story. Uh, which makes it very confusing for the reader, and you have to start finding ways to distinguish between them. Um, but uh, they are merchants, and you know, look, New York's economy takes off because of its it, it servicing the West Indian slave economy. The West Indian sugar economy is kind of what uh, puts New York's economy on the map, and so um, they're definitely involved in bringing enslaved people um, from the West Indies to New York. Um, I have not found their names in the transatlantic slave database, but certainly Augustus J uh, and Frederick Phillips uh, were associated with some trade, you know, near Madagascar. So, um, you know, they're, they're certainly familiar with it and they definitely brought people from the West Indies into New York, which is where most of the enslaved people from New York uh, in New York came via the West Indies. Um, some of them hadn't been in the West Indies for long, but it, it, that sort of transshipping um, is fairly common. And so, uh, they're buying people, selling them, and then, of course, employing them as bonded lifetime servants. And um, two of their two of the people they enslaved, Ben and Brash, are people implicated in the famous and infamous 1741 rebellion that historians are uh, arguing to this day whether it was a figment uh, of fevered imagination of Daniel Horshmand and other New York elites or whether there was an actual plot uh, by actual uh, African residents of New York to burn the city down. And historians are fighting over this to the, you know, and probably will continue to fight over this um, as, long as, uh, as long as we tell the story. But what we do know is both Ben and Brash are implicated uh, in the conspiracy um, and um, neither of them, well, one of them is already has already exited the colony, which is part of the reason why I think he's identified. You know, it's easy to identify a conspirator who's not there. Um, and the other ends up getting shipped off to Madeira. Uh, so he so none of them are capitally punished like so many were uh, in brutal ways. But um, you can see them on the list of, of enslaved people who were punished in some way or another um, for uh, the alleged 1741 plot. And in 1745, Peter J coincidentally or not, uh, decides to move the family to Westchester, um, to Rye, uh, where uh, he founds an estate. And he is one of the largest uh, owners of enslaved people in Rye, at least eight people, according to the first census that I saw uh, with the J name on it. So they are moving into the wealthy landed landowner class uh, and moving up to Westchester, still you know, with business interest in New York and, and property in, in Manhattan. Um, but uh, as sort of befit their status, they're moving to Westchester, where slavery was quite common amongst uh, both Anglo and uh, French uh, Huguenot descended people. And that's the family into which uh, John Jay is born. He's born uh, around the time they moved to Rye. So 
there are throughout your book these this these two conflicting currents slavery and abolition and and mm-hmm. you, we've just established that the jay family uh, involved in the slave trade owned slaves john jay owned slaves but he's also as you write in your book coming of age at a time when imperial rule and the laws governing slavery came under unprecedented scrutiny so can you talk a little bit about that i mean obviously uh, the slaves are everywhere they're in his family but you know, th- th- this is all times are changing a little bit. At least ideas are out there. Yes, and of course, the language of slavery is everywhere in the movement to question and ultimately to rebel against uh, British imperial rule. Um, that Jay, like so many of his contemporaries, describe what the British are doing to um, the Americans as a form of slavery, as a form of bondage, uh, that America, if it doesn't resist British policy, will become a land of bondage. bondage. And as he tries to convince um, one of his uh, peers uh, to to not throw in with the loyalists, he says, do you want your children to be slaves? Um, You want to be the mother of slaves. Um, So this metaphor of enslavement is everywhere. Uh, And different people do different things with that metaphor. Just because you're using that metaphor does not mean you're gonna become an abolitionist or become anti-slavery. But Jay, in fact, does start to question um, the moral, political, philosophical basis of slavery. Um, He regrets that the 1777 New York Constitution, which he was very involved in writing, but absented himself at the very end because his mother was uh, on her deathbed. And he writes to two of his um, political uh, fellow travelers compatriots, Robert R. Livingston and Gouverneur Morris, pretty significant New York figures. Um, you know, I really wish we had gotten an anti-slavery clause in the Constitution. And Gouverneur Morris had actually tried um, and failed to get a sort of statement of principle into the Constitution that our goal is to wind this institution down. So it doesn't, it, you know, much like Vermont, um, the sort of the breakaway province where Vermont did at the same time. And that doesn't make it into the final draft. But when we see Jay express regret, it's too bad that we didn't get some sort of anti-slavery statement in there. Uh, and then in 1780, he writes from Europe, where he's been dispatched to um, see if he can drum up some money for the revolution, first from the uh, from the Spanish, and then ultimately um, to where he goes to France, where he helps to negotiate the peace treaty that ends the war. Um, when he gets wind that Pennsylvania passes a gradual emancipation law in 1780, he writes, you know, one of his right-hand men in New York politics, Egbert Benson, and says, we should do the same thing in New York, uh, and we should not rest until we do that. And until we do, our prayers um, for liberty are are impious, right? We're we're hypocrites, basically. He says that, um, but then negotiates a treaty uh, with the British that expressly uh, forbids the British from carrying away, uh, to use the actual language of the treaty, from carrying away Negroes. Um, and he's not just a bystander from that. Historians used to try to pin that on Henry Lawrence, like let's pin it on the Southerner. But uh, Adams, Franklin, Jay, and Lawrence were working together as a team to nail down the, the language of this treaty. And, and, and it was not something that any of them objected to. Um, but on the personal side, and this is the side of the story we haven't gotten to yet, he brings two enslaved people as property to Europe. Um, one, uh, a servant from his father-in-law's household, William Livingston, the governor of New Jersey. He marries uh, William Livingston's daughter, Sarah Livingston Jay. And a slave from that household, Abby, travels with them to Europe as sort of uh, as Sarah's personal servant. 
And when their ship gets blown off course, that they need to get a new mast, they wind up in Martinique and they acquire a 15 year old named Benoit. So they show up in Europe, the masters of two enslaved people. And in France, um, in the law involving slavery in France is very complicated, but basically the French didn't want French planters bringing their enslaved people into the interior of France. That, 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 that was something that, that um, they were trying to, for whatever reason, not to do. So it's quite possible that the enslaved people that the Jay household had with them when they moved from Spain to France, that that, that is actually a violation of French law, but no one stopped them. Um, and so in their household, um, right, are the sort of the literal embodiment of Jay's impious prayers. And he's a very religious uh, praying sort. So um, he's not just throwing that phrase around. And, uh, and a terrible tragedy happens. And I, I can go into it now if you want. Sure. Um, yeah, it's really sad. Where, um, so Abby, who has been with Sarah Livingston Jay through both births and miscarriages in Europe, was incredibly important to maintaining you know, uh, Sarah Livingston Jay's comfort and probably her sanity. Um, so they moved to France in the outskirts of, of Paris. And um, there's a French servant who is treating her um, very meanly and she gets frustrated and she takes wage work. She leaves the Jay household and takes wage work um, with a local laundress. But John Jay at this point is off um, recreating in uh, and decompressing in England after having negotiated the treaty. Um, so he doesn't, he, he, you know, he hears about this um, through his nephew and his wife. Um, so the Jays are like, well, what do we do? And uh, they ask Ben Franklin, who's an old, you know, who has lots of connections in France and knows, uh, you know, how to get what he wants and knows what the local customs and the lay of the land are. And Ben Franklin comes up with the idea of, well, let's, you know, throw her um, in a jail cell and teach her a lesson. And so they do. Um, and Peter J. Monroe, uh, who's John Jay's nephew, who's kind of a, a sort of a, an apprentice assistant kind of figure, um, you know, he's, he's really basically a teenager, kind of does a little shuttle diplomacy and is going back and forth and, re and reporting on what Abby says and what's going on. Abby gets sick, probably with pneumonia, uh, very sick. And they decide, all right, well, enough is enough. Let's bring her back, uh, let her out of jail, back into the household. But she's so sick that she dies. And John Jay is distressed because this is upsetting his wife. And he's befuddled because he can't understand. And he expresses his inability to understand what Abby was thinking. He says, I, you know, I promised her that I was going to free her when we got back to uh, America. Well, A, says him, you know, after the fact, maybe sure. he did, maybe he didn't. Right. But also if you're Abby, like, you know, how good is that promise? Um, right, right. How much do you want to depend on that? And also she was very vulnerable. Um, she felt sort of like she felt neglected and she felt like she had some leverage. Um, and it showed some courage to basically go on strike, go work for wages and say, if I'm not going to be treated with respect in this household, I don't want to be here at all. Um, but, uh, Jean Jay, not for the last time, is obtuse, a bit thick, a bit insensitive when it comes to 
discerning the motivations of the enslaved people around him. Well, and even um, in, in other spots in the book, you write that, uh, you know, when he talks about uh, freeing his enslaved people, which he he writes about often, it's usually after he feels that he's gotten the value out of them, you know? It, yes. So it, it's it's actually, there's this, this underlying sadness in reading his, his letters about this. Yes, because he, you know, he will say like, slavery is a violation of natural rights and natural law uh, and no one should be enslaved. And that puts him, you know, in the vanguard, even amongst founders of saying it and believing it and actually, you know, freeing people who are not, you know, related to him. Like Jefferson only freed people who were his, you know, actual um, progeny, uh, I mean, you know, and Jay does free people, but he does kind of go through this formula in his head. I mean, he, he is a person, people are often befuddled when I talk about my work or when they um, read my books about this whole notion of gradual emancipation. They're like, well, you know, that seems self-serving and it's wrong. And if they really believe this, they shouldn't do it. John Jay is about as convinced a gradualist as you'll find. He really believes in this formula. He believes that enslaved people should get their freedom, but that, um, you know, it should be on the schedule of the, uh, white people who enslave them and that there's some sort of calculus, as you say, of, of value, of labor value that I've, that, you know, he invested money in Benoit. He's going to get enough work so that when he frees Benoit, um, he'll have been compensated. And he, and he speaks like this with other uh, instances. I mean, he, he avows it. Um, and then later in the early 19th century, when he frees uh, Zilpa, um, he applies the actual formula of gradual, the gradual emancipation law of New York to Zilpa, even though he's under no legal obligation to apply that formula. And that formula is women, uh, when they reach the age of 25, who are, the, who are born to enslaved mothers, get their freedom. That's the, that's the gradual emancipation formula in New York. So when he thinks Zilpa's about 25, and I think he's actually budging on the dates, either because he doesn't know them or because it's convenient. Um, in 1817, he frees her based on the formula that is a legal formula to people born after 1799. She was born before 1799. So like it or not, I think John Jay, we can actually say, thinks that this is a formula that works and that is reasonable and it that it's uh, serves the interest of all interested parties, but it definitely serves his interests. Right. I mean, it, it you know, slavery might eventually go away, but it's still going to be a paternalistic system that white men are uh, you know, having to uh, keep an eye on the free population. Yes, he has. Yes. I mean, he controls the sale and has his hands on the tiller with with, with emancipation. Um, but I also think we shouldn't infer from that that he doesn't believe it when he says that, like, this is an institution that um, is a violation of natural law and that we should um, resist it where we can. And, and in, in diplomatic negotiations, he basically decides that the British are correct when he is sent over to negotiate what becomes the Jay Treaty. Um, he says, you know, I was going to try to, I was going to demand some compensation for the enslaved people who were taken off in violation of the treaty in 1783. But in my British counterparts convinced me that I didn't not only wasn't going to get what I wanted, but I shouldn't get what I, what I asked for. Um, and he says this to um, Edmund Randolph, who's a Virginian, who's, you know, his uh, supervisor as, as secretary of state, because I think by this point, Jefferson's resigned as Washington's secretary of state. And Randolph blows a gasket. He cannot believe that the chief justice of the United States and chief negotiator of America's treaty with 
Britain is conceding that um, that it would be odious to use the term that Lord Mansfield used in 1772 and that Jay himself uses and that Alexander Hamilton used. It'd be odious to demand compensation for people who came by their freedom honestly by running to British lines to gain their freedom based on a promise of freedom. And so, you know, he's he's able to see um, that slavery is not defensible in principle. When he runs for governor the first time in 1792, um, one of his political operatives says, you know, you're going to be held responsible for some of your anti-slavery views. Uh, you're not going to some of the uh, small slaveholders in the Hudson Valley who are, you know, largely Dutch are going to think that, you know, if we elect you, you're going to take away their slaves. And I think he, the, the, the correspondent, you know, because this is how politics works then, was looking for some sort of signal. Can I reassure people? And um, John Jay does not disavow his anti-slavery um, views or the fact that he was, in fact, president, founding, inaugural president of the New York Manumission Society, one of the first, you know, full-blown anti-slavery societies in the Western world. Um, Jay says, I, you know, they do good work. They do good and necessary work. And, um, it, you know, slavery does need to be wound down and, 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 and declines to disavow the institution. Um, so there is this sort of split between um, his patience with winding it down and his uh, avowed principles as to why slavery shouldn't exist. If you could talk a little bit about some of the questions, I mean, you've already touched on it, that the Revolutionary War brings to the forefront about slavery. I mean, you just talked about Jay negotiating a treaty with the British over, uh, you know, uh, potential uh, compensation for enslaved people. But I mean, there was a real fear during the war, war that there might be mass emancipation, you know, uh, either from the British, uh, uh, you know, uh, enlisting uh, enslaved people or on the American side, you know, uh, sort of the same notion, putting them in the army and, uh, you know, freeing them that way. Yes, and in fact, there is at least, if not, there is, if not mass emancipation, there is large-scale emancipation occurring, largely because of the British promise um, that starts in Virginia with Lord Dunmore and then spreads uh, to the the policy uh, for the entire theater of war. That um, if you are an enslaved person uh, who is owned by a patriot master, if you make it to British lines, you are uh, free. And, you know, lots of thousands of people avail themselves of this. Uh, John Jay is the president of the Continental Congress when the, the famed Lawrence plan, um, uh, that uh, Henry Lawrence's son, uh, uh, John Lawrence proposes that uh, as a sort of trial run, they should uh, put 3000 South Carolina uh, slaves in the army with the promise that at the end of the war, they'll get their freedom as sort of a, a, a uh, trial to see if this might be a means of creating, a, you know, of ending slavery in, in South Carolina of all places. Now, 3000 isn't going to end slavery in South Carolina, but you can imagine, uh, you know, he had big dreams for this. And John Jay is the president of the Continental Congress when the Continental Congress uh, approves of the Lawrence plan. Now, for various reasons, it doesn't go into effect. Um, but John Jay's there. He receives a pamphlet from Anthony Benize, the famed Quaker abolitionist, while he's president of the Continental Congress. Um, and is very uh, uh, responds very politely uh, to that pamphlet. He does not dismiss out of hand. He says, "I can't basically. I can't go with your pacifist views, um, but you know some of your other views kind of you know, kind of draws. I mean, it makes sense to me." Um, 
So yeah, he's definitely um, aware that the revolution could be an emancipatory moment. And 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 obviously, I mean, he, as a New Yorker, I mean, they're well aware that some of the Jay people, uh, enslaved people in the Jay household, um, at least one winds up behind British lines and, and uh, sails away to Nova Scotia. So it's, um, you know, they're well aware that slavery is under duress uh, and threat um, during the war, not just ideologically, but in you know, on the ground, actual factual ways. Now, you've already touched uh, or talked about gradual emancipation in New York State. Uh, the law was passed in 1797 and it allowed- 99. Uh, 1799, I'm sorry. Uh, 1799 and allowed for emancipation over the course of uh, 30 years, something close to that. Um, now, but this wasn't the first time. I mean, there there were many efforts to pass this bill in New York. And something that I'm very interested in because I've worked in New York politics for many years was that it finally passes because sort of the demographics changed in New York. So this is a sort of a very specific question, but I'm very interested. What changed uh, in New York to allow that to happen? Well, one of the things that changes is that a whole lot of northern and western counties become uh, are sort of ushered into the state legislature. And the big roadblock that some of the uh, counties where more enslaved people are present, some of the uh, Long Island counties, Ulster County and in, in, um, in the Hudson Valley, their sort of last ditch was, all right, if there's going to be gradual emancipation, we want to be compensated for it. We want taxpayer money to compensate us for our lost property, even though the gradual emancipation formula already is sort of an indirect form of compensation because masters have access to the um, children of enslaved mothers for into adulthood. But they 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 wanted actual, you know, actual transfer of money. And that is something that is it, as as a complete non-starter in western and northern counties where there are just tiny numbers of enslaved people and those um those delegates uh to the uh new york legislature uh will not play ball on compensation uh, and so once that sort of last ditch like roadblock thrown up that well it, you know it either people will be you know so upset with this idea uh, that they won't do it because they don't want to compensate us or we'll get compensated. Um, once that fails, um, it's easier to craft a majority. And at this point, John Jay is governor. Um, he did not play a particularly uh, direct hand. He kind of let the legislature um, work it through, uh, in part because uh, this was one of the most um, partisan periods in all of American history. Um, this is the you know late 1790s when Federalists and Republicans are absolutely convinced. Uh, tell me if this sounds familiar. That the other party is dead set on destroying the country and all its principles. Um, but amazingly, the New York Legislature is able to get over its intense partisan divisions to get a gradual emancipation bill over the hump in 1799. Um, and John Jay's son, William, says, you know, this is one of my, you know, father's, you know, proudest, you know, accomplishments of what happened during his governorship. Um, we don't really have that in John Jay's hand, but that's how his son, who is a intense abolitionist uh, of the radical kind, um, sort of remembers it that way or records it that way uh, in his biography of his father. So um, they do get it done and they do get it done while John Jay is governor. Where do the Jay women fit into this? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, in um, unfortunately, Sarah Livingston Jay does not come off particularly well on the issue of uh, 
slavery and and servants um you know she tends to see she's a very privileged wealthy woman who um is happy when um enslaved people are um cooperating and um and less happy when you know she runs up against some recalcitrance and resistance so she you know hard to place her ideologically um it's a very one of the points that i try to make in the book is that if you take the issue of slavery out of the equation it is a very conservative traditional patriarchal family both in terms of how they conduct their lives and also how they order and think the world should be ordered um so they are not um you do not have gay women uh who um are like say the grimke sisters uh or um chapman uh and the west and her, her western sisters right they, they are much more behind the scenes john jay's uh daughters are both wealthy one of them never marries one is widowed very young they're very charitable people they give a lot of money away and including to some charities that uh, you know that uh, assist african americans in new york city um but they're not sort of overtly political augusta jay uh is very much um a sort of behind the scenes person i mean she is involved in some local temperance and educational initiatives but um it's a very traditional patriarchal uh family in which daughters are raised to be educated, refined, um, and um, supportive of their husbands. Um, that said, I mean, Augusta J clearly, because not only is her husband uh, an abolitionist, but her, her son, as it, as it happens, her only son, and has is given the name John Jay II, uh, so it's essentially John Jay's namesake, um, becomes an abolitionist at age 17, and though at first Augusta uh, is a little bit um, uh, nonplussed about the sort of you know the, the world of anti-abolitionist uh, riots in New York and whether abolitionists are sort of uh, inflaming things, once she, uh, her son, and her husband fully lock into the cause, she's a hundred percent behind them. Um, but she plays very much a sort of supporting role, and and the Jays are very critical of the feminism of the Garrisonian wing of the movement of the. Uh, of having women speak at American anti-slavery society conventions and, uh, and even um, becoming officers. Um, that's not that, you know, that kind of radicalism doesn't suit uh, their taste or their style. And it's one of the reasons why Jay kind of throws in with the, uh, the tappins in their walkout uh, once the, um, once essentially the American anti-slavery society's governance goes co-ed, if you will. Right. Uh, that's sort of the last straw for the Jays. So they do not come off well on the gender issue. Um, I mean, there are certainly, I mean, um, in the, in, when the New York finally starts assembling black regiments, um, there are definitely Jay women who sign the sort of letter thanking um, the African-American men who joined this, you know, pioneering uh, black uh, U.S. Army unit. So, uh, you know, you can sort of see it around the edges, uh, but they're not particularly vocal. Um, and again, it fits, it underscores this notion like that if you take this issue of slavery out, I mean, William Jay is kind of, he's a law and order judge. He is not nice to the uh, workers who get out of hand or, you know, uh, drink too much or get involved in larceny uh, while building the canals, um, you know, through and railroads through Putnam County. I mean, he's kind of a, 
he's not afraid to sentence people to hard labor and, you know, opposing leniency, you know, at the gubernatorial level by people he thinks are, you know, guilty of, you know, disruptive crimes. These are temperance people. Um, they are big promoters of Bible distribution. Um, you know, they have a very sort of conservative mindset and it's part of what makes them both really interesting, but a puzzle to their peers. Right. Their peers are always thinking like this, you know, why, why, are they so radical? It's embarrassing to a lot of their peers. Something that was really fascinating was John Jay II, John Jay's grandson. Uh, he, I mean, he develops a, a reputation as a phenomenal, I don't know any other way to put it, a slavery lawyer. I mean, he, if, if, you're, if you're a fugitive slave in New York State and you're trying to get your freedom, I mean, he's the guy you go to. You, and he takes great pride in, in, in that. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about uh, you know, what he was doing and sort of fugitive slaves in New York seeking freedom. Yeah, I mean, he's like the lead pro bono lawyer on behalf of um, African-Americans who have a case that they are have been brought illegally into the state or that are accused of being fugitives. Uh, and they want to obviously whether they are or not, that's they want to deny that part of their, you know, or, or that part of their history, because then they're going to get thrown back in slavery. So and uh, Eric Foner writes you know, very well about this in Gateway to Freedom. Uh, and he's got a lot of good J material in there. And there's some good J material in Richard Blackett's book on um, the captive's quest for freedom. Um, and, you know, and so I, you know, have looked at similar documents. And so basically, the eyes and ears are African-Americans. There's a lot of African-American activists. Um, many of them are, you know, tradespeople, they're working people, but, you know, they're the ones who know that there's, a, you know, people on a Brazilian ship that are um, black people who are being held in slavery or um, that a family of, of uh, people are being uh, transshipped to New Orleans. Believe it or not, sometimes people, um, you know, Virginians going to New Orleans would travel to New York and then get on the ship that goes all the way around um, into the Gulf, all the way around Florida, New Orleans. So they're the eyes and ears. There's this guy, a uh, fascinating figure uh, by the name of Louis Napoleon, uh, an African-American who, brings these cases to the go-to lawyers like John Jay II. Um, I mean, John Jay II isn't the one at the docks. He's not the one with his ear on the ground, but but that African-American community knows what um, lawyers they can go to. And by the way, there's a tradition of this in the family. Um, so John Jay II's uncle, Peter Augustus Jay, and, uh, and, and um, Peter Jay Monroe uh, were lawyers for the New York Manumission Society in an earlier generation. Where they would represent people who were um, who could claim that they were uh, illegally enslaved, and so there's also this is another thing that's a tradition in this family is that using their legal um, skills and their connections in New York to represent enslaved people, and then it becomes a whatever can stall uh, a, and put sand in the gears of the legal system, uh, and this is true both before and after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law. The Fugitive Slave Law makes it more complicated. Um, but before and after that, they're always uh, trying to file writs of habeas corpus, trying to find local judges who will say, you can't just claim someone um, is enslaved or legally enslaved and take them with you, that, that there has to be a legal process. And this becomes a very important issue in New York politics. And um, eventually, you know, Governor Seward, um, who is, runs kind of a wishy-washy campaign the first time he runs for governor, but once he's governor, you know, gets behind the notion that there needs to be due process. So there are various political and legal figures who want there to be due process. And John Jay II is one of those figures. Uh, there's one case where basically 
they slow down the law long enough so that someone basically slips out of their jail cell and out of the city and out of the state. And it's not that, and, and I mean, this is, they know this is part of the game, like anything to slow this down. Uh, but sometimes you have to do, make some devil's bargains. There's a case where um, John Jay II gets his client to plead guilty to a, uh, like a larceny or robbery charge um, related to, I, I think, getting a boat that he's going to use to escape so that they, he, he doesn't, so that he gets sent to jail so that then he doesn't get hit with the fugitive slave uh, label and then sent back south. And then John Jay can then, you know, try to work his, uh, you know, his angle in Albany to say, okay, can we get this guy free? So, uh, and John Jay also takes a case of a African-American, well, a person who is in, a, in med school in New York City, who is essentially outed as having um, African-American uh, lineage and gets booted from New York, the New York Medical School, New York City Medical School, and John Jay takes up his case um, that he's, you know, this is a miscarriage of justice. Right. Um, you know, he says a lot of lawyering. There's also some lawyering, a lot of lawyering within the, informally within the Episcopal Church, um, where he takes up the case of young, a young Alexander Crummel, who goes on to be a, a central figure in Pan-Africanist um, thinking in the 19th century. He just wants to get a degree from the General Theological Seminary and be a, an Episcopalian minister. And the bishop, Bishop Onderdunk, says, we're not going to educate uh, Black people at at our seminary. And so it's not a legal suit, but he sort of applies that same future lawyer kind of skills to say like, well, we can't let them get away with this stuff. Just to underscore how complicated this all is, uh, the law and slavery, uh, you you point out in the book that William Jay and John Jay II, father and son, both brilliant lawyers, both, both have fought for uh, enslaved people uh, most of their career. Once the fugitive slave law is passed, they sort of diverge in terms of wh what they think is smart. Wh what's the best way to go uh, continue this fight? I think I think William J is like, well, we don't want this to go to the Supreme Court because we know what they're going to say. Uh, and John Jay uh, the second has a different feeling. Yeah, it's very complicated. In the wake of the Dred Scott decision, the fear is that if you get anything to the Supreme Court, they're just going to make it worse. Um, so yeah, those the, these, these cases get very, the Lemon case is, is the famous one that works its way through the New York case for courts for years, long after the, uh, the enslaved people are living as free people in Canada. That litigation is still going on, and I, and I think, as I recall, you know, John Jay the Second is like, wait a second, like if this goes too far, this is going to be like a second Dred Scott decision, and they're going to you know say. Basically, okay, you can't ban slavery from the territories, uh, and by the way, now you can't ban it from the states either, which is kind of what Lincoln had warned about too. Like, you know, what in the House Divided speech, like, what is the next? You know, you're gonna you're gonna go to sleep um, in Illinois thinking that slavery is illegal, and you're gonna wake up and find out that it's, you know, federally protected. And so, uh, the Civil War breaks out before the Lemon case ever, you know, uh, has a chance to make it all the way to the. Supreme Court, but who, you know, he's, they're very worried about this. Um, but it's also worth noting all the while, right, the legal part of it is like the front room, the back room is the Underground Railroad. Um, and these networks are sometimes the same people, but, um, you know, in court, you're arguing points of law, but behind the scenes, you're um, finding ways to get people to their freedom. 
Um, and we know that the Jays participated in this. Um, I mean, there's one letter from uh, William Jay to Sidney Howard Gay, who was one of the uh, an anti-slavery editor, who was one of the sort of uh, hubs of the Underground Railroad in New York, where he explicitly says, you know, I've got someone that we need to move on. But we have this wonderful letter uh, after um, William Jay dies, Stephen Myers, who's like the, an African-American in Albany. Here in Albany, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, who is, you know, the main organizer of the Underground Railroad, basically sends John Jay II an accounting of, here's what your father did in the last eight or 10 years of his life. You know, he free, you know, he helped, he sent along and he lists, you know, two people from Virginia and two people from North Carolina. And by the way, he also was generously sending checks up here. Um, you know, and like, because it's a secret and illegal activity, right? You're, you know, unless you have like a William Still who's keeping like meticulous records, you never know quite how many, but we do know uh, this happens, and that Stephen uh, Myers even names a grandchild after the Jays uh, and sort of on, in, in tribute. Um, and it's important again to underscore William Jay is a law and order um, until he gets kicked off the Westchester County Court when a Democratic governor finally like, okay, enough of this, you know, this guy and his anti-slavery and his political independence, and he's not a Democrat, and he's got, you know, views that we abhor. And so he gets removed from the court in the mid-1840s. But, I mean, this is a sworn officer of the court. This is a law and order guy. Um, but um, he just cannot see how there's any moral reason why you should obey this, you know, immoral legal regime that only gets more immoral um, in 1850, and like the Jays, just, they never forgive Daniel Webster uh, for compromising, um, for selling out. So I mean, like they, they remember when people uh, betray their values. I mean, they 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 despise Jefferson. You know, they think Jefferson uh, was always a hypocrite, and they despise him, you know, in part for his you know his more small d democratic uh, views, but also uh, because of his views on slavery. Uh, they they don't they don't forget a a rival, but their rivals don't forget them either. Um, and we shouldn't cry huge tears for John Jay II. He's the scion of a wealthy family. He's a, a rich lawyer. He's well-connected. But he gets blackballed from one of these gentlemen's clubs uh, in New York. The, it's not the Union League Club. It's called the Union Club, one of these sort of elite, like, you know, New York, you know, who's who kinds of places. He gets blackballed because he's considered odd, weird, an incendiary, a, a divisive figure. Right. And he is. I mean, he goes to the Episcopal um, convention in New York year after year after year after year and says, hey, when are we going to start treating black parishes equally? And, you know, most white Episcopalians, which is one of the least abolitionist churches in America. I mean, I, I did the I did the math once. Um, there's a great um, uh, there's a great appendix to uh that about religion and slavery and like you can't and it gives the denominations of all the leading anti like 600 leading anti-slavery figures and i think i calculated something like one percent of them were episcopalian so to be abolitionist episcopalian puts them in a very tiny group along with salmon chase so i'll leave you with this one davy you've been very very generous with your time and i don't know if i really have a question here other than to say i really sort of the scene in your book is very interesting and it's about william J fighting for his father's legacy. There's a mm -hmm. there's an author writing a book about Supreme Court justices or you know little biographies about them and he's he, he sort of he likes John Jay and he defends him he, uh, as a justice who 
who enforced the law and sort of didn't didn't uh, rule on his own uh, conscience or his own feelings. And William J. sort of feels like it's it's necessary to defend his father and say, you know, that was the times, and you know, there that people weren't thinking the way that we're thinking. You know, em- immediate emancipation is a good idea. Back then, they couldn't see it. There wasn't that vision. So I just thought that was interesting because, you know, there there are always these debates uh, in every time about, you know, prior generations and how do we, what's the proper way to think about them? So that just sort of stuck out to me. I don't know if you have any thoughts there, David, to add. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, throughout his career, because he doesn't, you know, he becomes formally joins the American Anti-Slavery Society in 1835, his first anti-slavery writings, you know, in 1833. So he kind of moves fully into the camp of the radical abolitionists who want the immediate full emancipation of all enslaved people in the United States. He moves formally into that camp in 1835. And from the moment he does, on and off, if people want to get under his skin, they say, how can the son of the moderate, temperate, gradual emancipationist and moderate and temperate on all things. That's kind of John Jay's brand as the founder. He's the calm one. He's the cool. John Jay is the cooler head. I think that's why he's not in the um, in, in Hamilton, the musical uh, is because he, he's he too, play well too much of a cooler head. He's not getting it. They're, they're no hard to, you know, John Jay in a rap battle. It works for <laughs> Alexander Hamilton, uh, but it does not work for John Jay. I mean, he's, he's just, he, you know, he his tone is always, how do we soothe things? Even as he's pushing the Constitution through the New York ratifying convention, it's always about let's calm down and figure out what we're going to do and why we're going to do it. And, and this is all about preserving order. And right? so his whole political MO on slavery and everything else is as a moderate, as a temperate figure. And from time to time, people say, whether they... Sometimes they say it directly aimed at William J. Sometimes it's 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 perceived as an indirect swipe. They'll contrast um, the moderate, temperate, gradual John Jay with some of these fanatics who are operating now. One of which is, of course, his son, who's one of the most uh, fanatically impressive anti-slavery writers. I think you know, and certainly one of the most underrated anti-slavery writers. And you don't have to rely on me, Frederick Douglass. Um, gave his eulogy in which he basically uh, turned William J into, you know, uh, I mean, you cue the harp music. I mean, he's going, he's going directly to heaven because um, he, you know, he's this sort of perfect abolitionist in, in, in uh, Frederick Douglass's um, eulogy. So every time William J always feels like I've got to slap this down and he does it with the Dred Scott decision. He does it with this uh, biography of the early chief justices. He does it with this theologian named uh, Moses Stewart who writes what must the portrait of William of John Jay think when he sees his son going off on these you know radical harangues, and and I think it's it grates its fingers on the chalkboard because there's a grain of truth to it. That's one of the reasons it grates, but also for William Jay, where he winds up is basically this: the people who criticize the abolitionists and want to enlist people like John Jay against me don't get it because they're focusing on means, not ends. And the end that John Jay believed in was that slavery needed to go, or that, that it was by the Declaration of Independence, the principles of the Constitution, the highest, loftiest goals of the founders, including that first generation of gradualists, that they envisioned the end of slavery. It's very similar to um, 
where Lincoln wound up in his famous Cooper Union speech. That that don't and so William J is basically saying, don't focus on me. It's different times, different senses of what's possible and what's safe. Right? They didn't know everything that we know. Like we've lived through a successful emancipation in the West Indies, and John William J says, you know that the um, the emancipation, you know, in San Domingue, you know, uh, was again an example of like you can do this. I says even New York immediately freed ten thousand people in eighteen twenty seven. Um, that and that it was far more dangerous to to wait. That it, you know that slavery is a volcano that's going to blow. Um, that you know, as he says to his his uh, school chum James Fenimore Cooper, what you think black people are the only people in history who aren't someday going to claim their freedom if it's denied them? Of course they will. So I mean, so for William J, it's all about like my father. I imbibed his anti-slavery spirit. Um, it's about ends, not means. And those who want to um, confuse one or the other are missing the point. Um, that will that John Jay believed. Uh, that the notion that my country right or wrong was an immoral proposition that you have to oppose. If it's a choice between your morality and your country, you choose morality. Um, whether that's actually how John Jay lived his life, we can debate on a different podcast. But, you know, these are the principles that he believed, having lived cheek by jowl with his father and written his biography. Um, and when one of the last, uh, you know, major events of his life, because he dies in 1858, is the Dred Scott decision. Uh, and you know this actually leads to a, a sort of increased discussion of John Jay because um, you know he has a very John Jay um, as a retired former Chief Justice supports um, barring Missouri from admission uh, to the Union because they want to come in as a slave state, and so there's sort of increased talk of like, well, John Jay that Roger Taney is no John Jay, and very much for John, for William Jay, it's like. You can't have Roger Taney and John Jay. That that they they have diametrically opposed um, understandings of the founding and slavery. And one of them was there, and the other one is just making it up, you know, right. fabricating things. And and it, and so, he, he, you know, to the end of his life, he sees the sort of um, usable past of John Jay as a bridge to the necessary future in which slavery is eradicated uh, from the land and from the republic. Oh, it's a fantastic book. Liberty's Chain, Slavery, Abolition in the Jay Family of New York, David M. Gelman. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure.